All right, we're in the book of Judges, and we're Judges chapter 4 today, and we took a break last week, and we were in Psalm 2, and I, I mentioned that we were doing a Father's Day message sort of last week, although um, it was more of a, just a general kind of message about, um, well, coming to Christ and, and the world that we're in and all of that, but I, I mentioned that we would be covering Deborah, the next judge, and I thought... It would probably be better to cover her the week after Father's Day uh, and doing that. But it is aptly placed here and the timing of God is perfect. And you know a little bit about the, the book of Judges and um, we've been in it now for some time. And the book of Judges falls as one of the historical books of the Bible. And it covers a period of, of time of about 400 years and there are times really that show the cycle of Israel in that they followed God. Remember, they come into the land under the hand of Joshua and, and uh, the land is basically um, divided out by the tribes and all of that. And then a generation or two goes by and Israel begins to go back into idolatry and following after other gods. And God had told them that if you do that, that he would cause all kinds of things to really come into their life that would hopefully provoke them back to himself. And uh, the law commanded that, and he made a covenant with his people, saying, if you will follow me, I will make you prosperous. I will keep your enemies out of your land, and I will uh, bless your little ones. I will have, have you have children. All those attachments to that of the following of God. And when Israel failed to do that, they would go for a little while in their own direction, and then they'd end up in bondage again, usually enslaved, in fearful times, in times where uh, they were less safe by great means, and instead they were, um, well, serving other people, and they weren't to, in their own land. And so God would raise up a judge. He would raise up some human instrument that would come in, rally God's people, and they would repent, you know, be victorious, drive their enemies out, repent, and then uh, for a generation or so, they would follow the Lord again. And then, unfortunately, again, would come the times of that cycle where people would forget the Lord, they would start going back. And I've said this in our introductory remarks every week, that um, sometimes I feel like I can be on that sort of circle, you know, almost like a treadmill. You're running and running and running, and, then, and it's like all of a sudden... You're, you're back at the beginning, right? You feel like you've messed up so bad. And the sin has come back into your life. And um, you were prone to forget what God is doing. And I'm so thankful that one of the key messages of the book of Judges is that repentance is offered all the time. Like as we repent, and the life of a Christian should be a life of repentance, we can go right back to the Lord in his direction and he begins again to bless in our lives. And that's something that um, we can expect, but we also can expect the other side of things, of those spiritual blessings being removed when we are removing ourselves from him. So um, that's sort of, the again, the book of Judges. And one of the key verses of the book of Judges is that every man was doing right in his own eyes. And I think it's very much a commentary on the days that we live in today in America and in much of the world. People are just doing what they think is right in their own eyes, and sadly, it gets us in trouble. We really should do what is right in God's eyes. We're going to pick it up in Judges chapter 4, and we're going to read down to verse 9 here. It says, When Ehud was dead, 
the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, and commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harash Hagohim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountain of Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. And then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor, take with you ten thousand men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun. And against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude of the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hands. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And so she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Lord, we are grateful for your word and grateful that, Lord, you always have people ready to serve. And Lord, I thank you that even in difficult times where so many were going away from you and were caught up in worshiping false gods, that Lord, you delivered them, calling leaders to deliver them back to you. Lord, we pray that in our day, in this world we live in, in our country, Lord, you would raise up godly leaders with wisdom from on high that would call us not to a better economy or a better, uh, more prosperous material life, but Lord, rather, they would call us to you. And oh Lord, we might live by that example. And maybe even here in this room, you are raising up people to be like that. We pray for these little ones that have been added to our congregation here in these weeks. And oh Lord, we pray for them as well. In this world that they live in, they would grow in your grace and knowledge and know you. And Lord, make a difference. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We look at this chapter. If you want an outline, we see the spiritual condition of Israel. That would be the first thing. And, and again, it sort of goes with what I already mentioned in the introduction. But we'll read just again, looking at those verses as we go down through chapter 4 here. And it says, when Ehud was dead. Now, uh, remember Ehud, he was uh, one of the judges, right? And he had delivered Israel against King Eglon, remember, and the, the, the fat man, and how he went in as a left-hander and was able to stab the king, and kind of a gruesome story there, but it was how God used a man to deliver a nation. And it's recorded for us in the Word of God. And I again, one of the things you'll find out as you go through this, and through the different characters that we are studying, that they were people that were in many ways very ordinary or even in some ways handicapped in their ways. And then uh, Samson would be an exception in the sense later on we'll look at Samson, uh, who was a very strong man. He was gifted in so many ways and yet um, struggled with following the Lord in his heart 
in those things. But we find here the commentary, which is a sad commentary, says when Ehud was dead. Now we know from chapter 3, verse 30, it says, So Moab was subdued, this is under Ehud, uh, that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. So 80 years of peace, 80 years of rest, 80 years where there was a, a good opportunity to raise your family, all of that. They were good times, you would say. However, during those times, we find out that Israel began to, well, take their eyes off the Lord and worship other gods. We also know this, it says that actually in chapter 5, which is the song of Deborah and Barak. And we'll look at maybe, if we have time today, a little bit of that. But in that song, they said this, they, referring to Israel, chose new gods. Then there was war in the gates. That always follows in that progression, by the way. You will always have war in your household if you reject the Lord. You will always have war in your land if you reject the Lord. And you continue to do that. That's the natural course of mankind. When we reject God, we can expect strife and war and not rest. And it says, not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. They had become sort of complacent in their own defense, both as a nation and in their households. They were not ready for war. And little did they know, the enemy outside the gate was strengthening. The enemy outside the country was strengthening and would soon enslave them. And we find out they were enslaved for 20 years. Imagine that. And that was the condition of that. And I will just tell you that when I read through these um, scenarios and chapters this is history in many ways repeating itself today i think we are in a very dangerous time in our world and i don't live only for this world and it's a good thing but uh, we are living in a world where people are running around saying we're safer than ever and i say no you're not you're further work from god and as you go further from god you'll be less safe and an enemy will come in The old world, the flesh, the devil will come in and take you out and enslave you. And just be aware of that. Watch out for those things. This is the commentary of the conditions that Deborah found and Barak found when God called them to a place of leadership. And we read a little bit more about that. And by the way, it's easy to get our eyes off the Lord. Throughout Scripture... The Christian is also the believer you know, from cover to cover, but the, specifically in the New Testament, we're called to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and that, I believe, is a reference to chapter 11, which talks about the various people that God used, and that by faith they followed him, And that whole chapter is on faith and about God's people who followed in faith. So you read chapter 11 and you go, wow, you know, what are these great heroes of the faith? And they're listed there in that previous chapter. Some that I wouldn't have chosen, but they're they're people that God chose. And when then you come to chapter 12 and he says, therefore, we also, says, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lie, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And look who we're to be looking at, all right? We're to be looking onto Jesus, not looking onto the past, 
Like, don't stay in Hebrews chapter 11, all right? And look towards Moses and Abraham and, and others that are listed there and Sarah and others. They're, they're dead. Jesus said the same thing. He said, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. What he was telling that generation when he was here was this, that you who just look out at your traditions and your, the things that were handed down through your history and those patriarchs and, and matriarchs that were of the family that handed on the faith to you and all that, they are dead. I'm sorry to say that. And they cannot help you today. Now what they did on a positive note, following the Lord, that spurs us on. The writer here in Hebrews says that. But we're not to look to them. We're to look to Jesus. We're to look forward. We're to look to Him. He's the great leader. And I say that because it's so easy as a believer to fall into that trap of either looking in the past and clinging to it or looking to a worldly, earthly leader and falling there too when that person goes. Ehud was dead. He could not help Israel anymore. Matter of fact, they forgot about it, God. As soon as Ehud was dead, they go into enslavement. Think about that. How quickly we forget. Then it goes on to say this, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your, your souls. One of the things that will happen, and it happens to me all the time, is you get discouraged. Right? Anybody else here ever get discouraged? I don't know. Life is full of discouragement. I'm, well, I'm saying all kinds of good things today, aren't I? But it's true. We live in a world that can be very sad and gloomy and filled with bad things and things don't go our way and, and you become discouraged. You're like, ah, oh, I've tried so hard and here I am again on that cycle of sin or whatever. And I can say this, you're looking to the wrong person. Don't look within, you'll find a whole sinner right in there. You know. Um, now if you're born again, you're one of his, he gives you a new heart, new direction, new Really, we're born again into his family. We shouldn't be serving the old nature. But I will say this, you can become discouraged in your souls, right to the very heart of who you are. And as we are in today's world, I think of this because I see it firsthand, where I see people who are suffering from such great heaviness of heart, discouragement, depression, clinical depression, um, and, and, and want to give up. And all of that, and they do so because they've become discouraging. Believers are not exceptions to that. It happens. And I will just say this, that when you look at that, we are looking at the wrong person. Don't look to just an earthly counselor. They may help you for a little bit, but they can't fix you. Only one can really fix you. That's the Lord. That's it. And I I say that, follow him. Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. And, and we're also to understand that, and I, I, this is why when I read through the book of Judges, I, I end up with this kind of sort of paradox going on in my heart, you know, this con- conflict in my heart. Because in some ways I want to just cheer on those judges that came along and they did a mighty work and, and they delivered Israel and I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, I'm like that. I want to be that kind of a warrior, right? Or, or that kind of a person that will stand. But then I come to the next thing and, they're serving other gods and they're following that cycle again. And I think, I think, oh, yeah, that's me again. Sometimes we can stand in our pride and we can stand because yesterday I was victorious, right? 
and we think today, I'm going to be victorious because yesterday I was victorious, right? And the Israelites were like that. They looked back and they, they had Moses, right? They, they had Abraham. Um, they could go back at the time of Christ and say we had great kings like David. We had judges like Ehud and Deborah and Samson. And we can go right down through the line and stand in pride. And Jesus says, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. Pride goes before a fall, right? In 1 Corinthians 10, 12, it says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You ever do that? You make fun of somebody for falling on the ice, and then you find out you fall on the ice too, right? Yeah, it's easy. And spiritually, we end up falling very easily if we aren't, our hearts are not fixed on heaven, fixed on the Lord. Verse 2, so the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Heresh Hagim. We find that's their chastisement. The corruption we see is that they were following other gods, but they were chastised. God said, you want to serve other gods? Guess what? I'm going to, you're going to serve other people. You're going to go into enslavement. And that's what it says. That so the Lord sold them. In other words, God didn't go up there and put them out on the auction block and say, Here, you know, the highest bidder goes to this man, this woman, this child. But their sin put them there. God says, You want to do that? Guess what? You're going to be sold into it. The Lord does that in the sense to bring them back. That's really what was going on. In the book of Romans, it talks about that as well. There is this tendency to go away from God, isn't there? In our natural state, we're born in sin, we're shaped in iniquity, and we have already bent to go away from God. And the further you get from God, the worse it gets. And when it's really bad is when God gives up. Say, God gives up? God will give up. In other words, he gives us over to our own sin and affections and all of those things. Romans chapter 1 says that. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Everyone. Everyone. It's the same gospel. For the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, that it is, or as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Then he goes on and says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Do you think there's a motive for people today to suppress truth? Hmm. There's a lot of talk about that, right? I mean, suppression of free speech, those things, and sometimes they're just bad ideas they don't want to suppress, and then there's sometimes the truth they want to suppress. All kinds of stuff. But people don't want the truth. Whether it be natural revelation or supernatural revelation. They don't want truth. And I tell you, we live in a world where the idea of, of logic and those areas of talking and dispensing truth and all that is, is foreign to so many. You watch interviews with uh, particularly some of the young people. Um, and I say old people are there too, but I see it with more of the younger people. And it's amazing how they think sometimes, some of them, not all, some of you here are 
are still good thinkers in many ways and you young people do that make sure you exercise logic and you look at truth and you test it truth will stand apart from our testing and I, I say this that they, they come to these conclusions that there can be many truths really you know yes something can be have many different areas of truth but there's really just truth objective truth in those things and I, anyways a lot of different things that's a big one but suppressing the truth in unrighteousness see the problem is not the idea of truth not being true it's the fact that we as moral beings right if we have to suppress this idea of being held accountable for our moral actions then we we don't like it you either have to accept that you need a savior or you reject that savior those are the two decisions that people will make and they suppress the truth in unrighteousness those two things come together it is not just a new thing that the further america gets from the truth of the word of god the more unrighteous it becomes in its society Look what it says here. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Listen, creation bears witness of a creator. And you literally have to suppress that truth that is in every single person. That We are born with that. You know, you have to actually come to atheism by taking steps where you suppress it. And you look outside and you see the wonder of God. My son and I were talking about this, um, Sam and I, the other day we were sitting on his property and we were looking out at the beautiful flowers down in his field and the trees and everything. And he says, isn't God in the sun? You know, the sun is just a really pretty red color because there's smoke in the air right now, all kinds of stuff. But, but you know, the different hues of light, just light and visible light that we can see and we marvel in the beauty of light and the beauty of color. God could have made everything just green. He could have made everything black. He could have had no light at all. But he made things with such beauty. I think of the shades of green. I look around this room and there's all these shades of green. Different. Shades of blue and red and white and you name it. You go right down through the colors of not only the spectrum, but the colors that God so creatively makes and masters. That very night I'm outside and I see fireflies flying by and bloop, a little bright light. Bloop. Wish I could do that. Wouldn't that freak people out? Go outside. Bloop. Wouldn't that be, oh, that would be just great. I gotta, there must be a hat you can get that for that. Some little hat I would do. That would just be perfect. That would really, really freak people out. I can't do that. God didn't make me with some phosphorescent, you know, ability or, or whatever to, to be able to do that. But I, I tell you, God is an amazing God. You have to suppress the truth of creation. Why is it that the, the universe is so orderly in many ways? No, somebody said, well, it's a chaotic universe. No, it isn't. We had a, a, a two in the last week, two very large asteroids pass between the, uh, the distance of the moon and Earth. You know, it was closer than that to the Earth. 
And they said either one, if they would have hit the earth, would have been pretty tragic uh, wherever it hit. And uh, one was not that huge, but the other one was a lot bigger, um, but still big enough to cause major damage if it struck the earth. And, and yet they knew within a few days of finding those that that would not hit the earth. And they knew that because the earth and the, the, the whole cosmos is mathematically designed and perfecting. And if we can get it right, the data, we don't always get the data right, but, but we, can, we can actually calculate the orbits of heavenly bodies out there and all that stuff. And we can put some probe on Mars a couple years after it launches from here. You know, those kind of things. And I, I look at that and I think, God, you made man with that ability to function like that. And yet we'll turn around and suppress the truth. Middle of the night, like this, this past week, the main house passed a law that further expanded abortion. And, of course, they did it in the middle of the night. And they do that in the middle of the night because men prefer darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Not all of them were evil. There were many that voted against It fell by one vote, basically. And expanded abortion up to the time of birth. And I think they'd like to go further than that. I find it so tragic. And I say that with grace because God forgives. He can forgive anything. If you'll come to him and repent, he will. And I mentioned earlier, Maine is considered the oldest state in that our, our means age of the state of Maine is a little over 44 years now. 44 year old. So if you're younger than 44, you're on the young side of Maine. If you're on the other side like me, you know what? We're in that group that's weighing Maine into the older age category. And nothing wrong with that. But I, I find it again, here we are in a state where we're getting older and older and older. And we're making it easier to make it, you know, older. By snuffing out life. I won't get on that. That's a big one. You have to suppress the truth in unrighteousness to say that something in a woman's womb is not alive. That that's not a baby. You have to suppress that. Look what it goes on to say this. Uh, it says, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. It actually makes us in a place where we're without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. See where we go? Turning away from God. Nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Can I say this? That in my state and in my country right now, we have more access to information than ever before. I mean, all the time I'm asking Siri for whatever else, you know. Like if, if I want to ask, hey Siri, what's the temperature outside? Seventy-three degrees outside. I don't know. You want to go outside? No. All right. I just got that information like that. I could click on it again and ask Siri some other weird question, and she's still listening to me. Watch out. Go away. Now we're in trouble. One of these days, I'll just ask Siri something, and I'm, poof, I'm gone, you know. I don't know. Try to make my head glow. I, I, you know, all those things. But we have access to information almost instantaneously today. All over the world anywhere and yet our hearts are becoming darker and darker and darker and darker oh 
America needs to repent. God's people need repentance in their life and walking right with him. The nation of Israel needed repentance. We need that. And we will just get further away from God otherwise. And then it says, professing to be wise, they became fools. How many people out there on the talk shows and in the articles written on the blogosphere and all of that stuff, saying all these foolish things that even go against nature itself and trying to convince everybody else what is plain and simple and natural and everything else is not. (laughs) Think about that. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into images made like a corruptible man. Birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. I thought of that as I see these parades going on for foolishness and people dressed up as, you know, cats and everything else and celebrating whatever they do in the bedroom. And they're real people, by the way, and they have souls. You have to always be seasoned with grace when you talk to people. And I mean that. Christians should not hate. Not at all. Except by the grace of God, I'd be there too. So would you. And you have loved ones maybe caught up in some of the crazy things that are going on in our world. But that's our natural tendency. We'll turn around. And it may not be in some area that they're celebrating today on for pride events and things like that. But it, it, it may be just they erect a church building or something that looks like a church building. And then they say, they say oh, we're going to worship God. But they don't. They worship idols. It's a natural tendency for people to worship idols, to worship anything but God. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness. There's when God gives up. Just like where it says that the Lord sold them. It wasn't so much as I could say it this way. I'm not defending God because God doesn't need my defense. But God says, fine, you want to do what you want to do, go. I give up trying to get you to come back this way that's repentance i'm going to let you do whatever you want to do therefore god also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of god for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator that's idolatry who is blessed forever amen and you could go on that's the new testament Beware of that, because God chastises those who are his. Deuteronomy 8.5 says, You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Why would you want to chasten a child or your son or your daughter? You'd want to do so because you love them, and you want them to, well, come back from whatever action they're doing. Hopefully, that's, if you're a good parent, that's what you will do. And in doing so, you're not doing it because you hate them. You do it because you love them. Why does God allow these things to come in and that even into the, uh, the house of God and among God's people? He chastens them so they might repent. And Sisera, the, the general Sisera, he was there. And others that were enslaving Israel, they were there as God's instrument to provoke Israel back to repentance. It's that simple. Now, we have the big picture. We can read about it from beginning to end. Now, back there, I'm sure there were a lot of people wondering like we do. Sit there and you go, wow, the world's bad. Why is it so bad? Can you imagine how God sees it from his perspective, right? Last week, we're in Psalm 2. 
He laughs. Huh. Man, whatever man does this week, he's not going to change God's plan. Ultimately, God has it all taken care of. Revelation 3.19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. God wants repentance. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Isn't it great that God offers that invitation? Here's Jesus. He's telling his church, his churches, Revelation 2 and 3 are, are letters to the churches. And he says, repent. Repent, church. Repent, Jack. Repent. And then he doesn't just leave us there, feeling miserable in our sin. But he says, I stand at the door and knock. That's the door to the church, by the way. You can certainly say, as I've preached messages out of this text and heard others preach it, it's a great invitation from the Bible. He stands at your heart door and knocks too. And it's possible today you have not trusted the Savior. You have not let him in. Or sin has crowded him out. I think if you're one of, him, you know, one of his, you're not going to lose him that way. But we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can quench the Holy Spirit. And in doing so, we stand there, just a door is all it needs to be opened, and say, Lord, come in and let this sin out. And he promises to take it. Back there in the book of Judges, chapter 4, it says, And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. So there we, we, we see the cry that goes out. They cried out to the Lord. All their false gods couldn't do a thing for them. Only the Lord could. For Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. They finally came to themselves and said, we're done. And they bowed their proverbial knee before God in that way and said, Lord, how long will you do that? Stand in your own strength, trying to find a way to heaven. Only one way, and it's through Christ. And you can only come to him as you submit to him. And you cry out, Lord, save me. That's the cry of faith. We'll move on here. The call of Deborah. You see the spiritual condition of Israel and now the call of Deborah. Let's read here verses 4 and 5. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. We are introduced to this woman named Deborah. We find out that she's a judge in Israel. She's someone who has actually um, been gifted with wisdom and with revelation from God. She's a prophetess. And as people come to her with their problems and various things, she's there for them in doing that. Now, there's a lot could be said about Deborah. Some have said, well, does that show that like, women should be in leadership positions over uh, in spiritual matters and all that? I just say the Bible shows that there was a woman who was in spiritual leadership in a, in a nation. She was in a, a political leadership as well in that she was considered someone who was um, dispensing justice. That's the word judge as it is used as well. 
And I would say this, that God uses those who are available. And she's a woman of courage and a woman of commitment. And I've often said this, instead of arguing whether she should have been the one to judge, I would say, well, where were the men, right? If men were to be the leaders there, and I, and I, I, I differentiate that, within the context of the church in the New Testament, I think it's pretty clear that men should be the leaders. And they should do so as a pattern, as unto the Lord. And it's an issue of a man submitting, and, and also, like in the context of a marriage, a woman submitting to her own husband, and Paul says that women should not basically, paraphrase, but exhort men in a public context. Uh, does that mean with children? No. Does it mean with that? No. I, and I, does it always mean that women can't say anything? No, not at all. Um, I would say this, that when men are silent and fail to lead, you will have, God will raise up women. He'll do that. And I think that just shows the spiritual condition Israel was in. Men had given up the fact that they were no longer the head of their household in service of spiritual matters. They were worshiping other gods. Where were the men there? There wasn't a sword to be found among 40,000 men in households. Where were the men defending their homes? Not against only spiritual matters, but about physical matters. You know, men are to be the defenders in society, primarily. And it doesn't mean women can't defend. They sure do. And I, I say that carefully. In, in that, but I will say this, that men are designed that way. Should be. Don't give that over to someone else thinking they're going to take care of my household. They're going to take care of my society. You men stand up and be good leaders. Good leaders. Godly leaders. We don't need more arrogant leaders, more people that just walk on people, but we need people that are wise with God and walk with him. And I, I say that just to, to not by any apology. I just say that as scripture says it. <clears throat> she, pro, she was a prophetess, and that means this, that she, it certainly implies she received direct revelation from God and was a dispenser of that revelation. Sometimes prophecy is a ministry of foretelling what God has said. Sometimes prophecy is the ministry of foretelling what is going to happen. In this case, she says that they are to um, gather. And you, you see the prophecy here, verse 6. I've got to go there. Stand by. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh of Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded? Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor. Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun. And against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude of the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. So here is this woman, Deborah, who says to Barak, Hasn't the Lord said... You need to rally the men. You need to take your army. You need to get out there. You need to fight. And I find it, again, just ironic in a sense, a sad sense, that she had to be the one to go tell Barak to do that. Now, I'm not going to pile on Barak because God was using him as an instrument. Now, you could also be said that maybe they weren't aware of that up to that point. God had said it to her. Now he's telling through her them the word of God what is important is the obedience that follows 
And I just say this, when the word of God is presented to you, obey the Bible. Obey the word of God. Look at it, study it, do it. It works. It works in your household. It works in your land. It works. Do it. We see the problem. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go, I will not go. And so she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking. For the Lord will uh, sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Now, I'm sure Barak's thinking, I guess Deborah's going to be the one to defeat Sisera. That seemed to be what was implied there. If you're, but again, God doesn't always reveal the next step in detail for us, right? He commands us to do things, and He doesn't tell us why. Sometimes He doesn't tell us to have why this this works this way. And sometimes I think only from heaven's perspective will we see the reasons for things. Here we'll see it in this chapter, and I won't take much time because I know we're our time is dwindling here. We'll read on. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and he went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Canaanite of the children of Hoab, Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Zenim, which is beside Kadesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, all the people who were with him from Hersheth, Hegoyim, to the river Kishon. And then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. Wasn't going well for Sisera. He went there to fight and he thought it would be just the same old fight. An undefended Israeli army that was just a bunch of men probably with rocks in their hands. And instead they were armed men and they fought there for for the Lord and Sisera took off running. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Hersheth Hegoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. That's a complete annihilation. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Haber the Canaanite, or Kenite. For there was peace between Jabed king of Hazar and the house of Heber the Kenite. So he flees to what he thinks is a friendly household. And he goes there, and it says, And Jael went out to meet Sisera. She's a woman, all right? She comes out. Here's this great warrior king who's now lost his entire army. He's fled on foot. He's tired. He's seeking refuge. He meets this woman. He thinks, well, I'm in safe hands now. And by... Cultural duty there, the women who were, uh, they, they were in charge of the tents. They were in charge of the household. They were in charge of hospitality, all of that. And look what it says, she said to him, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. Do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. 
Then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you and says, Is there any man here? You shall say, No. You can just picture this scene. Brings him in. He, he, he lays down and there, or lies down, and then he uh, gets covered in a little blanket. Can I get some water? No, here's some milk. Nice warm milk. And all of a sudden, it's nappy, nappy time for Sisera. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. She went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple. Didn't see that coming. She nailed him. <laughs> and look what it says. It went down into the ground, and so he, he was fast asleep and weary. So he died. This great warrior king that had oppressed Israel for 20 years was now dead and he was dead at the hand of a woman who just took a nail and a peg and drove it right down through the man's temple into the ground ouch yeah God had the last say in Sisera's life it's the way it is with God by the way and God can take the thing that Sisera did not fear and bring that instrument down. And basically he took the hand of a woman. And he, he was slain by this woman. Just as Deborah had prophesied. And spoke forth the very thing. And then it says. And then as Barak pursued Sisera. Jael came out to meet him. And said to him come. I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent. There lay Sisera dead with a peg in his temple. And so on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. And then chapter 5 is the victory song. And if you want an outline, we're gonna, we might cover that chapter next week, I'm not sure. The sweet cry of victory. You see, this chapter starts off pretty poor. The times were rough. They were enslaved. They were following other gods. But it ends with a great victory. And my friends, that's the story of the Word of God. The Bible itself talks about really how God created all things. He made them good. Then sin comes into the picture. And God sends a Savior for us to save us from our sin. And eventually, someday, in the end, there will be this great song of the redeemed, the song of victory. Will you be part of that multitude? that will sing that song of victory? I hope so. And I invite you in that way. Lord, we are grateful, grateful for your word and grateful for the history of the nation of Israel and this story for us and how, Lord, you can take really the weak things of the world and confound the things which are mighty. You can take those that maybe, Lord, are, are not considered intellectually wise <laughs> And you can make us wise in your scripture. And oh Lord, we can stand and profess truth in a world that, that really balks at truth. And oh God, I pray today there would be such people that would rise up in our country, cross our lands, and Lord, truly you would be the one who would be heralded forth. In Jesus' name, amen.